Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. Denali National Park and Preserve, established in 1917, is Alaska's most iconic park. Today, my guests are Sharon Steitler, the park's public affairs officer, and Tucker Chenoweth, the park's South District Ranger. As the park is opening for summer tourism and the mountain is hosting its first climbers of the season, Sharon and Tucker will cover ground from the first successful summit of Denali in 1913 to the impact of the Pretty Rocks landslide on travel in the park this summer. Keep listening for more on Outdoor Explorer. This is Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. With me today are Sharon Steitler, the Denali National Park and Preserve Public Affairs Officer, and Tucker Chenoweth, longtime climbing ranger and now the South District Ranger for the park. Sharon and Tucker, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Lisa. So I think we're going to start off with you, Sharon, to talk about the park, mainly because you're on a little time crunch. So we'll get you going first, and uh, <laughs> then we'll hold off on Tucker to talk about um, more of the mountain itself. So uh, let's talk about what it's going to look like visiting Denali this year. Well, the big thing that we're trying to tell everybody is, is plan for the unexpected but we're very excited that we're going to be more open this year than we were last year. Uh, the Denali Visitor Center will be open so people can come inside this year. Last year they weren't. Um, we're super excited that it is also the centennial of our kennel program. And for the past two summers, we haven't been able to have our dog demos and those are coming back this summer. So not only can you come by and say hello to a sled dog, but you can also watch a demonstration of how those dogs work in this park. And uh, you, so you are there, there are dogs that are kept like permanently there that do work in the park? Yes. Yeah. I did uh, not know have, this. This is the only <laughs> national park that has dogs. That is amazing. I did not know that. Yeah, when I was here last summer and I did my job as a detail, a temporary assignment, uh, I uh, you can volunteer to walk a sled dog after work. And I just fell in love with the idea. It was one of the reasons I applied for the permanent job was <laughs> I get to walk a dog. Okay. <laughs> and that's the um, dream. It is. And and all the dogs uh, have very unique personalities. Uh, the dog I walk is named Party. She was part of the litter that was born during the centennial of the National Park Service. But we have some new puppies that were born last summer and they're just learning the ropes. So yeah, and, and when you're driving through the park or if you're on one of the shuttle buses, it's not uncommon to see the volunteers walking the sled dogs along the park road in their off hours. So it's just, it's a really unique thing. And, and you can go to the Kennels website and see the Kennel Centennial celebration that we're having. And even uh, we have little bios of each of our dogs. Oh, that's so neat. And so what kind of work do the dogs do in the park? Um, well, they're, they do mushing in the, in the wintertime and they help out a lot with getting supplies and biologists to research projects. Uh, you know, they help patrol a park. That was one of the reasons Harry Karstens brought them in 100 years ago was, you know, this is the park that's the size of New Hampshire <laughs> and uh, there's only one road. And in order to access some of these sites, uh, you have to use uh, what's traditionally been used in the area. And that is the Alaskan sled dog. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. So um, 
what is the difference? Like, uh, I mean, there's always all of these programs for local people to come visit the park. That's a little bit different than the tourists are coming from the lower 48 or in on the buses. So what are the differences there? What's offered to local people to come to the park? Well, uh, you know, in the, in the off season, right after we plow the road in, uh, in a, depending on when we can plow the road and before the buses start, uh, if you live in the area or if you are in the area, you can drive the park road about 30 miles uh, out to Teclanica and anyone with a park pass can do that. So uh, when I was here last summer for the first time, that was one of the first things that I did. Once the buses start running though, you, uh, you can only take a, a personal vehicle to mile 15. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, that's, that's one way that we offer that. Uh, during the pandemic, we had a road lottery. We won't be offering that in the fall this year. Uh, one of the big reasons is the Pretty Rocks landslide has cut off access to mm -hmm. half the road. And so we're gonna have a lot of construction equipment trying to uh, fix that situation. But uh, anyone can uh, get a ride a free shuttle into the first 15 miles and you can get dropped off at the kennels, you can get dropped off at Mountain Vista, uh, you can get dropped off at Savage, and you can hike the trails around there and that's all free. Uh, there's also the option of transit buses, which you can take out to go camping or go day hiking, uh, and that'll take you out to about mile 43 this year. And then there are also the tour buses that you can take to where you can have a more in-depth either natural history tour or uh, a tundra wilderness tour. And that's an all-day tour you can take on a bus. So those tour buses, are those the old school buses? That's mm -hmm. what I did when I was a kid. So <laughs> you're a little fancier now, just a little fancy. They have cameras. So oh, okay. you know, when there's a bear <laughs> off in the distance, the driver uh, can uh, zoom in on that and, and you can get a closer look at the bear. But Right now with all the snow, the, the bears are quite close to the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're recording this like the middle of May right now. And uh, Tucker was telling me earlier, there is still a lot of snow up there. Yes, uh, I'm a birder. And so for me, it's been particularly exciting because there's still so much snow all over the park itself. And since the roads are plowed, a lot of birds like Lapland longspurs and snow buntings are concentrated wherever they can find open ground and that's along the road. Mm -hmm. uh, we also last week had uh, our first observed uh, moose calves in the park. We had uh, a cow who uh, had, had twins right on the park road and they hung out for a few days. So um, yeah, we are do give the moose a wide berth. Is, <laughs> isn't it something a, a wide berth? <laughs> yeah, is aren't all moose calves in Alaska dropped like between the middle of May and the end of May? I think it's like a two week period or something. Where I mean, even down here in South Central, like it doesn't matter how far north you go, they're all dropped about the same time. Yeah, I that that seems to be the experience I'm having in my limited yeah. time here but they're they're particularly cranky they've been a little cranky all winter though with the massive amounts of snow and just having a tough time uh navigating through snow that's five to six feet high so if you if, when, if you see a moose on the road just please give them lots of space yeah uh have you uh spotted any other wildlife out yet like uh, obviously you see wolves probably year-round and uh but what about the bears have they brought their cubs out yet or uh, I have not seen any bears with cubs, but bears are definitely out and about. They first mm -hmm. showed up uh, this year at the end of April. Our road crew, while they were plowing, saw them uh, around Savage. Um, I've had to do some work on the park road and um, out 
out past Sable Pass there, uh, we were driving and we went around a corner and there was a grizzly bear uh, digging up the road, uh, looking for frozen ground squirrels, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to the Pretty Rocks landslide. Can you explain when that happened and exactly where it's located? Well, for the last several years, uh, it, there's been a slide there and the road in that section was built on a rock glacier. So it's more rock than ice, but it's been melting. And we've been, we knew it was a problem. And so a few years ago, we started looking at options to, to try and mitigate that problem. Do we reroute the road? Do we build a bridge? And we thought we could maintain that. And then last year, the road started melting and sliding at an unprecedented rate. There was one point last summer where the road slumped 15 inches in one day. And we have some tremendous time-lapse videos that our geologists have uh, taken for us that are on the website. And oh, I'm going to go check those out. I haven't seen yeah. those. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's alarming for me. I'm like, wow, I drove that. And now it has just melted away. So uh, we're in the process of, there, there's a lot to be done. We've selected a bridge that's going to be built over the area. And just based on all the research that was done, that's going to have the least amount of impact and also be the most cost-effective. But we're still learning about how far down that rock glacier goes and where we can put the footings. So it's uh, it's going to be a long process, but it's going to be a great process once we get it finished. And so in in the meantime, since we can't take people out on a bus over a road that's melted, uh, we still are going to have rangers stationed out at mile 43, where you will get incredible views. Uh, you should also see grizzly bears and, and caribou out at that spot. And you can also go hiking uh, along the road there or along some of the trails. That's one of the unique things about Denali National Park is, we, I, I said trails, we don't really have many trails in the park. Uh, it's, it's, it's a park where you go off trail and we kind of want you to go off trail to not create new social trails in the park. So it's, uh, it's a very unique experience in that respect. So the the road uh, to Pretty Rocks, where Pretty Rocks happen is 43 miles in, is that right? The Pretty Rocks is closer to 46 miles in. Okay. And then uh, how gonna, long is the whole road? It's it's about 93 miles uh, okay. all the way to Kantishna. And as I understand that there are some lodges that are going to be open in Kantish, Kantishna, but the only way you can access that is uh, through a flight and they have a small landing strip there. Mm, okay. There's some people though who bike the whole road, right? That or try, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you're gonna do that, you have to check in with our backcountry rangers. Mm -hmm. uh, and and this year, if you're gonna park, if you're gonna bike any part of the road, we're very excited. We have a new bike safety sticker. So if you talk to a ranger, even if you're just doing the front part uh, up to Savage, uh, we just want, want to give you a quick three to five minute talk about bear safety and bus safety and vehicle safety. And then you get this really cool bike safety sticker that was designed by uh, local artist, Sarah Crawley. Oh, no. um, yeah, it's, it's beautiful, but, uh, but yeah, if you're going to do the backcountry, you, you have to talk to our rangers. Uh, you will not be able to bike through pretty rocks, <laughs> obviously. Uh, but we do have some options for where you can walk your bike, uh, around the slump. If you want to continue and go all the way out to Kantishna, but you know, I'd want that to be a lightweight bike. I really wouldn't want to push a, a heavy e-bike through the dungeon. Oh, uh, are people using e-bikes to get in now? E-bikes are uh, showing up more and more on the road. Uh, in some, some ways, I feel like I'm a minority with my uh, little gravel bike. <laughs> I go up Sable Pass uh, when I'm able to do that. 
Is that, um, have you guys discussed, you know, it kind of creates a little bit of controversy in the bike trails around here. Like it's semi motorized, I guess. And, um, like speed limits. Cause if you were on a motorcycle, you couldn't ride a motorcycle all the way in. Could you? No, but with a, with an e-bike, you know, it's, it's not like a moped, you know, you get the pedal assist while you're pedaling. Right. And so it really does help people when they're going uphill. And it's also an accessibility issue. I mean, there are a lot of people who cannot ride a traditional bike because of maybe it's age or maybe it's, it's an injury or something like that. And so this does allow people to access uh, the park road anyway, uh, in a way that is not going to be as detrimental. It is something that we discuss here at the park and it's something we want to make sure people do safely and happens in a way that doesn't cause conflict with wildlife <laughs> yeah uh and also the buses and the traffic but it's it's something that we talk about often and we have a bicycle working group and it, there aren't immediate answers but we're just working on it as as it goes yeah i guess it's somewhat different because the e-bikes are on a road they're not on a bike trail or a single mm -hmm. track or anything like that so it's yeah, not like they're and bike. it's a and those that road is pretty i mean you can see everything almost you know so it's not like you're going to be running into other people or anything head on, but you, you will encounter, you will encounter the tour buses. Uh, yeah. You can also encounter some of our road crew out there. And so there is definitely a bicycle etiquette uh, that we want people to follow for their safety. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we want a, a foot off the pedal down when a large vehicle is, is crossing. And I know that can be a bummer when you're going uphill. Trust me, I know that can be a bummer, but it really is the safe way to go. And we also wanna give you information about where you should put your bear spray on your bike, what you should do if you encounter a bear on the road. These are all very important things. Uh, so that, you know, you don't want to go blindly bike riding in grizzly country. Yeah. You, you want to make sure your bear spray is accessible and not in your pack, right? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I see Tucker smiling about that. Cause that's probably like the number one thing people do, right? They put it in the wrong spot so they can't get to their bear spray. Their water bottle holder. You can, yeah. Yeah. Which is a good spot. actually. Yeah. They, that's they a actually good spot. make carrying cases for bear spray that you can oh. mount to your bike. So it's readily accessible. I have one of those and it's right on my handlebar. So it's something yeah. I can grab right away. Oh yeah. Or you can like, can you point it so you could do it on the fly? If you're like actually moving it, you could make sure it's in, going. Yeah. Not, oh yeah. Although yeah, you'd be going in, yes, you'd be yeah, going into the bear the spray. You better stop. <laughs> yeah. Don't listen to me. <laughs> uh, well, so uh, Sharon, I know that you uh, have to get going pretty soon. You have some movers coming. Uh, is there anything you, else that you wanted to add about visiting the park this summer? Um, I just, again, I just want to reiterate, please plan for the unexpected. Uh, you know, we, we're anticipating a robust tourist season this year. We're anticipating a lot of the cruise traffic coming back. Uh, and, and everybody's doing the best they can with the amount of staffing that they, they can. And if you are coming to the park and you're not taking the tour buses and you just want to go to Savage or Mountain Vista, please, please, please use our free shuttle service. It will save you so much 
parking headaches because we don't have a lot of parking uh, around mile 15 or at Mountain Vista. And the shuttle service is free and it'll get you to where you need to go. So please, please take advantage of that shuttle system. Yeah. And you don't have to drive. That's so, You don't I have mean, to drive. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about when the moose jam or the bear jam happens. Let, let our shuttle drivers uh, take care of that for you. And they also are fantastic at pointing things out uh, along the road. You know, they're, they know where wildlife is spotted. They're used to looking for it. So they can also do that little extra thing of like, oh, there's the moose over there. I think, um, uh, if I remember correctly, like Denali is the only park that has this sort of system where, where at some point you have to take a shuttle in. I mean, I think maybe I heard Yosemite is starting to go towards it too, but is, is that true? Like, like we have like this developed shuttle system that we've always had there and it's really cut down on traffic on the road, which is really good in terms of wildlife viewing and just the climate too. I don't know. I mean, I think we're the only park. I'm not sure if Tucker can answer that one. I'm still fairly new learning this, but it is it is something that we try to do to manage expectations for people to get access to the park, but also to do it in a way that's safe for wildlife. We don't want the wildlife harassed. We don't want them habituated to humans. And so that's that's the main goal is this is this is wilderness and this is also a preserve. So we want to give people access, but we want to do it in a way that that honors the land and also really is takes care of thinks of the wildlife's needs first. Mm -hmm. I, I mean I, I think, think that, Zion National Park comes to mind and there, you know, there may be a few out there, but Denali is pretty unique unique. Zion does a seasonal uh, summer shuttle uh, in their park as well. So there's a few other models, but Denali by far has the longest road using that model. I, and you think I, they modeled after us? Probably. <laughs> if you are just joining us, you are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My guests today are Sharon Steitler and Tucker Chenoweth from Denali National Park and Preserve. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. You are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My conversation with Sharon Steitler and Tucker Chenoweth from Denali National Park and Preserve continues. Tucker Chenoweth is the longtime climbing ranger, now South District Ranger for the park. And Tucker, let's start with um, the history of the park. Uh, when, did, when was the park first formed? So, uh, signed into law in 1917. 1917. Okay. Is it, yeah. and where does that, how does that sit with some of the other parks in the nation? Is it one of the older parks? Yeah, it, it's one of the older parks. I mean, you can put Yosemite and there's a few other of these uh, kind of initial parks and, and Denali was amongst those. Mm -hmm. yeah. Was that like, a, didn't Teddy Roosevelt push the national park system? Wasn't Yeah, was Teddy Roosevelt and uh, Woodrow Wilson actually signed Denali into law. Mm -hmm. And Denali itself, the park, um, I haven't looked at all this, but I, I know that it, it sits on Athabascan land and specifically the Koyukon Athabascan, at least part of the park does, but 
their name for the park, Denali, uh, is translated as the tall one. And in several different dialects of Athabascan, it's the tall one. But the Denina also, who the Denina who are in the Anchorage area, also had a name for the mountain that was very close to Denali and it translates to big mountain. So all of these original people who were here were obviously really enchanted by this huge mountain. I mean, you sit in Anchorage and you can see it. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, obviously it was a, a, a prominent landmark for them. They didn't spend much time like in the actual glaciated mountains. Uh, I think they, they, they used the rivers and the, the area around where the game uh, and where the hunting was good. Or, but they, so the, the core of the Alaska range, which is Denali, was um, pretty untouched during that time. And is that just kind of the, just the mountain is just such an intimidating, hard mountain to get to? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's the big rivers where the initial access points to it. Um, you know, all those rivers that flow out of the Alaska range were kind of the, the initial places that people kind of started poking in towards the glaciers. Uh, and, and so I think that, um, the access was was hard, and you know the first explorers that came to um, actually that were looking at Denali, and at that time it was Mount McKinley was the name of it. Um, since been changed back to Denali. Uh, those initial explorers that you know that their big adventure was just getting to the ice um, rivers, and you know the south side down here obviously has major rivers, and it has what I call the Alaska jungle, which is just, you know, choked with alders and devil's club and really difficult terrain to move in. On the north side of the park's a little easier because it's uh, more tundra, uh, less vegetated and a little bit smaller rivers. There's still big rivers by, you know, normal standards. But uh, I think that the access was, was um, the big thing that kept folks uh, away. Um, but strangely enough, still, er it has early history. You know, first climbed uh, in 1913 uh, with multiple expeditions prior to that to try to climb it. Uh, so it still has an early history, like pre park history um, with exploration, but uh, yeah, hard mountain. Yeah. And, and the park itself, the size of the park itself, how big is it? Is it the biggest national park we have? <laughs> Six million acres. I mean, it, if you look at it, um, you know, the Alaska parks, I believe that uh, Wrangell St. Elias actually, um, but it wasn't signed into law until the Anoka 1980 uh, law came into effect. So, you know, the old park, uh, the core of the park was originally established in uh, 1917, but then the, the greater park wasn't added until uh, 1980. So, um, kind of guess it depends on which part of the park you're talking about. And um, it is a large park. Uh, most Alaska parks are fairly big and they're missing lives is up there. And in terms of like the vegetation, there's like a really big changing in the whole park, different kinds of vegetation from, you know, tundra to the, the, the Alaska jungle, the, the yeah. alders and everything. Can you kind of explain that? Sure. Like, in like, yeah. Well, you know, the Alaska range in general, is, is massive, right? It extends down from the Aleutian chain and then all the way into Canada. 
Uh, and so it makes this kind of big sweeping arc um, through the, uh, the state. And that creates a natural divide of sorts. And um, most of the moisture uh, in the state is coming through the, the Gulf and up the valley. And so that creates um, more, uh, more water on the side. So the rain shadow would be on the north side of the park. And that's where you know, the wildlife viewing, the road and the tundra, uh, that's where generally colder and drier in the interior uh than it is down here on the south side but that rain the range is so big that you know i kind of think of it as kind of a catcher's mitt for moisture anyway um and that's the south side is a catcher's mitt mm -hmm. the north side uh is is again in that rain shadow so it, it has a different snowpack um denali you know it's the prominent biggest part of the alaska range uh, and so it 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 will even affect the weather systems uh, that come through um, because it just pokes out, uh, you know, 20,000, 310 feet. So it's, it's, it's big. And, um, you know, it makes 14,000 foot Mount Hunter look small, but it's, that's a big mountain too. And it's the, the third largest, or I, I'm, I'm always confused about this because there's tallest and highest, right? In terms of mountains, <laughs> right? Because of yeah, where no, I think, yeah, a mountain is a mountain. Um, <laughs> But it, but what's different about Denali is that it starts uh, at um, such a low elevation. So like Calkeetna is at 365 feet. And so you're looking at this massive mountain, you're looking at all of it. And a lot of these other mountains, especially uh, in, let's say in Nepal, uh, they start at a higher elevation. The, the actual ground and everything is so much higher. So the relief uh, might be less on some of those peaks. Uh, even though their their elevation may be taller. So maybe that's what you're getting at. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm getting at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My dad always made this point when I was young. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That it's really kind of, the it's, he always thought it was the tallest if you start it at the very base without being up elevated. Yeah, I mean, and, and so if you look at the Wickersham Wall, for example, and that's the famous photos that you see of Denali taken from the north side, like Wonder Lake area, uh, that wall, Wickersham Wall, and you're looking at it all, the whole thing is in view from the bottom to the top, 14,000 feet that you're just staring at this massive face, you know, of ice and snow. So I think that's what makes Denali so dramatic is it's so big that your reference, you have no reference to how big it is either. So it, it dominates the skyline. And if you get up close, I did a traverse one time uh, around the back of Denali on the Peters Glacier. And you could stand right at the base of the Wickersham Wall and look up and you couldn't, you had to turn your head from like shoulder to shoulder to get the entire wall. You couldn't just look straight forward and see uh, the edges of it. You had to swivel your head um, from one side to the other, you know, to me, that was a really amazing sense of scale. And that is, you know, in Alaska, we, we always term it the Alaska factor, which is like things are bigger than you think because you don't have anything to put scale to. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, um, it's oftentimes a lot further or a lot bigger than you think um, when you're looking at these mountains in the distance, whether it's Denali or, or the Chugach. Or it's mm -hmm. all kind of the same. That just kind of made me think like, how far up the mountain have you seen kind of iconic wildlife like bears or wolves or uh you know there's a story that i i believe is uh 
is true um, because I know the individual very well, um, that there has been a sighting of a bear. Um, it was from a little ways away, so, but that a bear at a windy corner area, just like in the 11,000, 12,000, 13,000 foot area on Denali, um, which is outrageous. Um, we, we don't see them there <laughs> and haven't <laughs> since, but now and then you'll see some tracks that are pretty high. I wow. think generally they're down around 7,000 feet. You know, we'll see them in the Pika Glacier. Um, one time I was skiing out of the Pika Glacier and we watched a big brown bear um, in, in the pika, just running up the hill and sliding down on his back and like looking like he was having a fun time and he just went back and forth and just kept sliding down. You can watch their big footprints go right over big snow bridges. And, um, but I, that's generally as high as you see any kind of animal like that. I mean, what would be the purpose except to have fun, right? Because I mean, yeah. there's there's no reproduction up there and there's no food up there, right? Well, <laughs> so. there's there's climber food, so. Um, oh, I guess that's but true, the, yeah. But yet, uh, to date, we haven't had issue with bear and climber interaction, uh, mm -hmm. luckily. Um, see uh, wolverine tracks pretty high. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, the, the, the ravens are the ones that are really, um, they'll go all the way up. You'll see them up at 18,000 feet, uh, 19,000 feet. Um, they look a yeah. little ragged, but they're, they're up there and they're, uh, they're following the climbers and, um, mm -hmm. they know that they can get maybe a little scrap here or there. And so we educate the climbers on, you know, taking care of their food. And that's basically for, uh, raven problems, uh, mm -hmm. more than anything else. You know, they really should be our state bird, <laughs> not the ptarmigan. Yeah, <laughs> it should be the raven. amazing. They're they amazing. are amazing. I yeah. love ravens. All right, I have to step in here. The ptarmigan sound is amazing. That is one of the yeah. best things about Alaska <laughs> is that three stooges sounding bird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, three stooges, huh? Do we want that as our state bird? <laughs> At least no, the we sound is good. The sound we is don't good. have a chicken like some of those East Coast states. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think climbers have a special relationship with the, the raven. And, you know, it's, it's also, you know, been kind of, said through the climbing circles that they're the you know the souls of the the lost climbers or the mm -hmm. forgotten climbers and so there's a there's a unique connection there and i think uh, you know when you see a raven catching the thermals off the seventeen thousand foot camp um just sitting there riding it looking at you and uh, it's it's a pretty amazing bird to see up there when they land close to me i always talk to them because i always feel like they have there's somebody's soul or they have a soul yeah. or that they know, you know, so I think they're so cool. Uh, before we kind of move on from the history of the park, I'd like um, to talk about Walter Harper, who until sure. recently, I don't think was really acknowledged as the first person to actually, or, or maybe because the he was in that 19, it was 1913, right? The expedition, the first Correct. successful. Yeah. yeah. And Koyakon Athabaskan, um, his mom was, and his dad was Irish. And um, he was recruited by Hudson Stuck to be a guide. And um, I, I think it was, I mean, I know when I was in school, he was not acknowledged as the first person to actually step on the summit. Right. It's just been recently that that's happened. Can you tell us a little bit about Walter Harper? Yeah, um, 
you know, one thing that uh, we've done as a park is the Talkeetna Ranger Station uh, was renamed the Walter Harper Talkeetna Ranger Station in, in uh, you know, honor of this amazing person that joined this uh, first expedition to actually reach the summit in North America. Um, you know, he was accompanied by uh, Harry Karstens and Robert Tatum, and of course, Hudson Stuck. And that, you know, three month plus expedition uh, they brought dog sled in and came up through, you know, on the Muldrow side of the, the house over there. And um, yeah, pretty amazing story. And, you know, as the story goes, he was the first to the top. Uh, and it's uh, I just I when I tell people about the ranger station here, um, you know, that's a part of it now. And so he's a part of climbing history, um, which is, is significant. You know, it's significant to get to the top of Denali whatever year it is and however many number of climbers have been up it before it's always a it's always a difficult mountain to climb and at that time with the gear that they were using um, and you know they had a fair amount of information already from the previous expeditions but they're the ones that really put it all together and got to the to the south summit and um, and he was a big part of that and he was 20, 20 years old when he started this climb which i thought uh, it's pretty, pretty amazing. These early explorers were just amazingly hardy people. Um, I don't think by today's standards, um, I mean, they're, they're just phenomenal in, in the, the feet of the day. And I think he had a pretty successful life after that as well, except it was really short afterwards um, on his honeymoon he died in that, in the Sophia accent. I think it was Sophia. Yeah, was in, right. yeah. Like I think only five years later, like he was on his honeymoon, they were going down to Seattle, he and his bride and uh, that ship sunk in Southeast and everyone yeah. on it died, including him, which is really yeah. sad because it sounded like he was kind of a, he was already a rising star in Alaska and would have really contributed a lot more to the state if he had lived yeah, I mean, that's an incredible story, the Princess Sophia. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think 260-something, 68 people died in that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, tragic. Yep. Um, so can you tell us a little bit what kind of uh, gear they did have? Like, what clothes were they wearing? <laughs> and, I mean, that, that well, to me it, is really it, the amazing piece of it. Yeah, you know, canvas and um, wool. Um, they had a dog team that they brought up away. So a lot of their um, gear was, they, they had the dog team on the Muldrow. So a lot of that stuff came up on dog freight, um, mushed up. And, uh, you know, they had uh, the climbing gear of the day was basically all handmade stuff. So uh, they had, they put the skills of, you know, like rugged wilderness, um, expedition style camping, which included, you know, like hunting for themselves um, to get their, some of their food. And um, they had all that on the front end before they even got to the glacier. And then they're putting, you know, like um, wool, wool gear. If you've ever dealt with that outside, like it, once it gets wet, it's a total disaster. So like their, their skill set to be able to manage um, this heavy, uh, traditional gear, leather, canvas, wool, um, without these like high-tech fabrics, like they were, 
they were just stopping every chance they had in the sun to dry their gear out, uh, you know, and I'd imagine some days not moving forward, even though it was a great day to move forward up the mountain, they'd have to stop and dry their gear um, because really they're, they have to arrive up at those higher elevations, like 18,000 feet when you know, summit day with gear that's in decent enough shape and dry enough to uh, withstand those type of temperatures. And, and so um, I think it's a, an incredible feat to be able to, that type of self-care um, to at that day and age um, with that gear is really challenging. Big, long, um, handmade, forged alpine axes uh, that were, you know, like made out of spruce and stood like, you know, four feet long versus these smaller, lighter tools that they have. Um, steel um, crampons that were, or, you know, at that time, I even think I might be misspeaking there. They might've had just little hobnails in their boots, um, but really challenging. Uh, cutting steps for themselves with those big long alpine stocks uh, so that they could get secure footing, you know, big heavy ropes. It's, it's just, it's mind boggling. And, and I'm also thinking like their tents had to be like heavy canvas tents yeah. that they were hauling up there. Yeah. How big was the whole expedition? How many people were on it? Oh boy, it was big um, because a lot of that was support crew uh, right. coming up. They had cooks, they had uh, the dog mushing component to it. And then, uh, and then in the end, the only the four made it all the way up. Yeah. yeah. And at, before they made it all the way to the summit, what was the highest, the previous highest? Well, you know, Denali's got a crazy history, but uh, the North <laughs> Summit um, was with the sourdough, which has been disputed, uh, was the other high point. And, and so that was, you know, um, I don't have that elevation off the top of my head, but lower than the South Summit. Yeah. Uh, and, but you could see it from Fairbanks. So, you know, the spruce pool went up so that everybody could see that they summited the all here. Uh -huh. uh, but they went to the, the shorter summit. Okay. Yeah. So let's kind of pivot now to um, more modern times this year specifically. Uh, and it's been kind of a tough start to the, to the climbing season so far. Yeah, yeah, it has been. It's, um, you know, Denali, I think <laughs> Sharon said it. It's like she was talking about the north side, but she said plan for the unexpected. And I think that that's the general mindset whenever you're going to climb Denali in general. So I like that. Uh, and we do that, too, as rangers. You just you never know what you're going to get. And uh, out the gate, um, you know, we had a talented solo climber, which, you know, isn't unheard of. We get winter style ascents um, and solo winter ascents, uh, you know, not often, but we do get them. So it, it wasn't out of the, out of the blue. Um, and this uh, individual had, had the skills to be there, um, but just, you know, had, had problems on the upper mountain that will probably never know exactly what happened, um, but he didn't come back, you know, and that's the, that's the first trip of the year, uh, yeah. first person on the dolly. Uh, and so it's just a stark reminder that this, this mountain is, um, really dangerous at times and uh you know if you have limited resources um like being solo or even a small team and you're, you're out there before everybody else there's no support network uh it's it's really that 
you're taking on a lot of risk and um, that upper mountain just it's a very unforgiving place if everything lines up and the weather's perfect like sounds like it's going to be this week uh, winds are light and the sun's out and the temperatures are warmer it's it's not that it's not that hard but when that weather switch flips and those winds pick up and those temperatures drop and you don't have people around you um, it's like being on the moon is uh, Denali considered a, a tougher climb than Everest or the same or easier, or is it just, you can't even compare it because there's different parts of both mountains? Yeah, they're drastically different just in the style. You know, if you take the, if you look at them just as mountains um, with without all the infrastructure and things like that and the style of climbing on Everest is a lot different than Denali. You look at them as just mountains, um, Technically, uh, Everest would probably be harder uh, than Denali is. Um, but if you put the infrastructure in, you layer that on in the style of climbing that's done um, in, in the Himalaya, it, it just changes it to such a degree that you can't compare them anymore. Um, there's supplemental oxygen on Everest. There's um, fixed line that you can, uh, you can use to help you uh, go up most of the route. There's ladders and infrastructure through the great ice, the ice fall there, the canoe ice fall that help you navigate those crevasses. And so that's a different, that's a different mountain. It's a different style. Um, and is that so, all in who, who installed all that originally? Was it the Sherpas or was it the guides or, and then yeah. also that is just something they're allowed to do there, but not here. Right. Correct. I mean, they just, there's a lot less, um, protection over there. Um, we've, we've done a, Funny enough, we've done a, a ranger exchange over there where we've gone to the, the Kumbu and specifically the uh, Kumbu Climbing Center. And the goal for the R rangers that went there when I went there was to help train uh, the Nepalese people in modern climbing techniques. A lot of them, um, you know, they come from a, uh, you know, a farming um, type of background or, a, you know, their, their lifestyle doesn't lend to like, the technical equipment so their knowledge is had been and generally fairly low unless you like you help uh help teach it so we went and taught and so we learned a lot about it and we learned a lot about the people and so that there's a group of folks called the ice doctors and uh nepalese folks the porters mostly um go up and they they put that route in every year mm. and they put the ladders in they put you know new fixed line if they need it and basically open up the mountain. And um, we don't do that here. You know, Denali's in wilderness, uh, the routes in wilderness. So there's there's restrictions, like you can't land a helicopter like you can on Everest at base camp, you know, to get in there. Um, there's, a, there's a fixed wing landing strip that they can't go any further into the park. So that's where you got to get dropped off for a commercial uh, air taxi. And then you have to climb it. And, uh, it, it's a it's a lot of effort to climb it. You know, people are doing double carries, they're taking gear up, coming back and sleeping, um, and they're moving all their own gear. There's no uh, you know like porter structure within Denali other than your own team. Even the guide services, uh, if you're a client on a guided expedition, you're still carrying all your own gear, and so they we don't have that nor do we really want that type of service on Denali where this is, this is a wilderness, high 
an Arctic environment that one of the ways that we help protect that is that we protect the experience of it too. The expedition is an experience. And when you take some of that stuff out of there, you lose the experience. We're just talking about Walter Harper's trip and you know the amount of uh, wilder, like that wilderness idea and being that one team in the, on the mountain, like I can't think of more of the essence of what traveling through wilderness would be than that expedition. And so, you know, we can't fully recreate that. Obviously there's a thousand, we have a cap at a thousand five hundred people that can climb Denali in a year. Generally we get around thousand two hundred or so. Um, so it's not that type of experience. There's people around you, but you still are, um, there's limited fixed line on the mountain. So you have to climb it under your own power. Um, you have to remove fixed line except for one section, um, the head wall. If, if you're putting it in. So like it cleans, everything gets cleaned up at the end of the year. It goes back to a very uh, raw and uh, wild mountain. And so- um, So do yeah. you think that that lends to the climbers who come to do Denali are most likely better prepared than maybe some of the climbers that come to Everest? Because that has been a problem on Everest is that yeah. you have rich people basically being dragged up, right? And maybe that's not quite the same here because you have to be prepared when you come here. Yeah, I'd say that you have to be more prepared in certain ways. Um, you have to be more self-sufficient is probably a better way to say it. Uh, to come climb Denali, uh, whether you're an independent climber or you're a uh, member of a guided expedition, like you still have to have the stamina to carry, you know, a 40 pound pack and a 30 pound sled behind trailing behind you and you have to be able to walk, like walk up the glacier and you have to be able to be on your own feet on your crampons with no fixed line uh, with the guide or uh, your team is putting in running protection in certain areas so that uh, so you have to have not only the physical stamina but you have to have some quite a bit of technical skill as well and that technical skill is a huge range. It's basically it puts everything together um, for mountain travel. And so you're traveling on a glacier. So you have to know glacier travel. You have to know crevasse rescue skills. Uh, you have to know winter camping skills. Like that's one of the big ones is like, can you camp for 20 days on the snow uh, where you're melting snow for water? That's how you get your water, where you're cooking your own meals, where you know how to work stoves, you know how to. Uh, repair a hole in your thermorest or a piece of gear that gets broken because you need it for the another 20 days, you know? And so like those type of skills, those mountain skills, I think that's when you really look at the skill difference between the two groups. I really think that the Denali climbers are gonna have uh, more of that big, you know, broad skill set. Uh, they don't have to be super hard climbers, you know, you don't have to be a five, nine, or 510 rock climber. You don't have to be a uh, waterfall ice four climber. You don't have to be you know, an alpine three climber. You just like, you need basic set of skills, but a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, and that even ranges down to medical skills, like having somebody on your team that has like at least a woofer or an EMT, or even better, you have a doctor that can help you when somebody gets sick, he knows how to use the medications, knows how to like, uh, use altitude medications in case somebody gets sick. Uh, but all those things are a piece of this. And 
the teamwork required on Denali, I think, is the other major difference between uh, maybe what's happening in, in the, on some of these other peaks. Like, you really need a team that works together. Uh, and that team dynamic is like what drives, uh, I think, success for you on Denali. If your team is all skilled in all those aspects and you know each other, you train together, you know each other's strengths and weaknesses, um, and you're working together, having fun, those are the teams that usually make it to the top mm -hmm. with the highest success rate. It's the ones that disintegrate because they don't know each other or they have different risk, risk acceptance levels. Or teams break up and yeah, other, people go to other teams and... Yeah, and then that's all because their group dynamic out the, out the gate wasn't set up right. And that's all in their yeah. in your planning and preparation. Like mm -hmm. it takes a lot to plan a Denali climb. And one of the biggest, most important components is who you bring. Um, you know, you want to bring the best of the best and you want to be able to get along with them because if you can't get along, <laughs> you know, you not only are you camping with these folks for that 15, 25 days. But you're also tied to a rope with them. And so, yeah. like, if your partner is like moving too fast all the time and just pulling you, um, I'll tell you, it's, you get you're pretty frustrated pretty quick. And those team dynamics can circle the drain. And when that happens, I think um, that's that's when people don't summit, and that's when people make poor decisions. Um, it kind of starts this accident chain, uh, and that being the first one, like mm -hmm. team team dynamic. So you definitely should have gone and done some other big climbs with the team you're taking to Denali. Yeah, why <laughs> Seems not? Seems kind of like basic information <laughs> to me, but. <laughs> why not? It's going to make your trip more successful, more safe, and more fun if you've spent time with these people, or at least uh, uh, even if it's a little bit. Like yeah. down in lower 48, you know, go jump on Rainier. It's a much mm -hmm. shorter amount of time that you're committed to it. So if you, if you don't like somebody then, that's the time to figure it out. <laughs> Not when you're you're on a 25-day trip. Um, <laughs> it kind of seems like, just like with, uh, if you're doing races, you start like with a 5K and then you go to yeah. a 10K and then you go to a half marathon before you do the marathon. You don't just go right to the marathon. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, climbing is that way. And mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, you know, the, Denali's like should be when you're you've got all your skills together and you're like okay I'm ready like I have I have done my time I've had my mentorship um and I am prepared um and my team is prepared so like to me that's a lifetime of skill set that you've been bringing to the table to then try Denali you know mm -hmm. like put those skills to use in other places that are a little less committing uh and then when you're ready man come up here because this is one of the best trips that you'll have in your life um, if you're ready for it, it might be the worst if you're not. <laughs> Are there um, any of those Everest style, like lines going up the mountain or anything? Are those starting to happen on Denali? You know, our numbers have been pretty consistent for a long time now. Like I was saying that like 1,200 ish. Uh, and so those numbers haven't changed. And we do, we have certain things in place that spread people out. Uh, where we, you know, you have to come do a mandatory climber briefing here, and there's only so many spots per day, 60 mm. spots a day. So if you can't get in one of those, you got to go the next day or a couple days later. And so at any one day, if the weather's perfect, there's like 60 people going on to the mountain mm -hmm. at most, right? Yeah. Like generally, those aren't all full, but, and then so that, what that does is it just kind of spreads people out. 
what happens, however, is that you know we can't plan for the weather. So now and then we'll get these backups where the, the air taxis can't fly for you know two three days, and then so on either end, people coming out uh, at base camp get backed up. So you'll have you can have a lot of people there, or and a lot of people in town going in, and so really that plug of people then can kind of move up the mountain all at the same speed, mm -hmm. and so. In the height of the season, you know, which I like peak season is mid-May to mid-June, um, the 14 camp can get pretty busy. And not only is that plug of climbers moving up from um, base camp because they got stuck in town, maybe they all get to 14 camp and the same scenario happens where there's the upper mountain weather isn't good enough, but people are still stacking in the 14 camp. So mm -hmm. we do get some lines, mostly. Um, our problem area uh, is probably the head wall, which is right out of 14 camp. There's some fixed line there uh, that kind of the steepest part of the mountain um, has, doesn't right now, strangely enough, early season conditions, it's not quite in place, but once it's established, there's an up and a down line. And so we do a lot to educate people on, on ethics, similar to Sharon was saying about the biking on the north side. Mm -hmm. Climbing rangers will just, help people pick times like just to spread them out and um, we don't have the same problem uh, at, to the extent that Everest does because there's no other way like mm -hmm. there's other ways if you have the skills to not use the fixed lines uh, and climb a different route that comes out of the 14 basin and so there's ways to mitigate it and especially like we were talking about if you have the skills um, and you're up there you're not going to be limited by the fixed lines you'll have this huge world open to you where you can kind of go anywhere you want yeah um, if you have the skills and the right team to do it so um, that's it because there's definitely choke points on everest right where people just can't get through they can't get through and we don't have anything like that okay those type of lines and there's there's more options to uh, relieve those choke points for us i believe than they do on everest once you get to the actual summit is is the actual plateau summit of Everest, the same amount of space as the actual plateau of Denali? Well, I wish I could tell you. I've never <laughs> been there. Uh, nor because of the lines do I want to go. Right. The, um, there's room on both summits from what I've seen of Everest, but I can talk specifically about Denali because I've been there a few times. Denali summit has room. Um, and and in general, there's room to pass people too, going up and going down. Like there's generally plenty of room to maneuver around so we don't have those those spots where i could see um you know you just hear this the stories uh on everest where people just can't move um you can always move and you can you can always turn around you can always there's always an option for you i think on denali where mm -hmm. uh, maybe on some of these other peaks there's not so if things really do go wrong and a rescue has to come in i know you have some great partners that do a lot of training on the mountains specifically what i'm thinking about is like the pjs the 212 yeah. um uh how much uh you know are they out on the mountain quite a bit and you know i know they are just amazing in rescues yeah um we have a really good partnership with the 212 which is the pjs and then the 210 is the the um the air resources so mm -hmm. the the air uh air force national guard is the 210, 212. And uh, we have a great relationship with those guys. Um, the, what we do is 
the PJs and the park rangers cross train fairly often with our ropes rescue and um, PJs have the, their paramedics. So we'll bring them on our patrols uh, as a medical provider. Uh, so they'll join a ranger patrol. Uh, and then they also do their own in-house patrols, which we just had a uh, PJ patrol fly in yesterday. And so they they're, uh, use it as a training ground for themselves. And then we cross-train to help them uh, be better in the mountains. Uh, and so it's, it's an important relationship. Uh, it's one that's beneficial to both parties. And uh, yeah, we're really happy to have uh, those guys on the mountain helping in the medical capacity and rescue capacity. Maybe. And then they don't only, are, are they only doing mountain stuff? I'm assuming that like if there is a mauling or something that's kind of in an inaccessible place, do they come in for that too? Not as much in the park, mm-hmm. but the way, you know, they're on alert. So basically they're in a position to do rescue for the state of Alaska. I'm sorry. I was just listening to radio. Um, <laughs> They, they do rescue for the state of Alaska. So if there is something that's outside the park, um, that would be something, yeah, that they'd respond to or an aircraft mm-hmm. accident or whatever. Um, in the park, we have jurisdiction there. So generally it's uh, rangers that'll, that'll go to that thing first. Um, but if we don't have the resources, uh, that would be the next call. Uh, okay. Either the state troopers uh, or uh, the Rescue Coordination Center, RCC, and then they task out uh, that what what resources they have and generally that'll include the PJs. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think we're so lucky to have them. <laughs> oh yeah. They do a lot of work here. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Well, Sharon and Tucker, Sharon's back and uh, back in order to say goodbye. And um, it's been just fantastic um, talking with both of you. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour, but we are right at that time now. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having us. And Tucker, thank you. I learned a lot listening to you today. (laughs) Great. Thanks, Thanks, Lisa. That was great. I appreciate it. That's it for today's show. Thanks to my guests, Sharon Steitler and Tucker Chenoweth. You can find pictures and more information about the park, Walter Harper, the Pretty Rocks Landslide, the blog Denali Dispatches, and the Denali Kennels on the Outdoor Explorer page on alaskapublic.org. The show is produced by Eric Bork. My name is Lisa Keller, and from all of our hosts here at Outdoor Explorer, thanks for listening, and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.